do. Because I was born with an inherited speech defect, inherited from my dad's side of the family, that was so severe, I could not pronounce the word T-H-E, the. Speech therapists call it an articulation disorder where the tongue has no idea where to go for certain sounds. And so medical doctors told me to give up all hope of ever being a public speaker. One day, seeing high school, my head between my hands so no one could see I was crying because I had just been ridiculed what seemed like the 500th time. I told God, if you'll heal me of this speech defect, I will always use my voice for you. And starting that week, I started having control I'd never had in my entire life. And that's the year speech therapy brought me to where I'm today. But when you come from that kind of background, you don't take one opportunity for granted. It does not matter if it's a hundred or an audience of a hundred thousand. Because if it were not for the grace of God, I could not step on any platform anywhere in the world. And it's such a delight to be here with you. But this morning, I would like to ask and answer the question, what kind of Christian do you have to be to lead someone to Jesus Christ? What kind of Christian do you have to be to lead someone to Jesus Christ? And if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn them, take them and turn to one of the most exciting paragraphs in the entire Bible on evangelism. Or you can follow me on the screen as I read it, look on a Bible next to you, or take that page out of your bulletin and the paragraph and reproduce for you right there. But I want you to leave here not just knowing what I said, but knowing we're in the Bible, God said it first. So when you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians in the second half of the Bible, a book called 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I like to start reading at the first verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I like to start reading at verse 1. Again, follow me as I read so you know where God said first what I'm only going to repeat. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And I, brethren, I came to you, did not come with access of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Every single one of us have had those times. We have daydreamed about something we'd really like to do. It may have to do with our vacation. It may have to do with our vocation. It may concern our leisure. It may concern our livelihood. It may concern a hobby like building an airplane from start to finish. Or it may concern a house like building a home from floor to ceiling. But every single one of us have had those times. We have daydreamed about something we'd really like to do. But then we've said, I don't know enough. I'm not old enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not brave enough. Then all of a sudden, we have the opportunity and we find out it's not nearly as difficult as we have always made it. For example, from the time I was knee-high to grasshopper, the one thing I always wanted to do was go horseback riding. Now, I suppose one reason is those who know me well know I am one avid outdoorsman. And as you know, they always recommend you ride horseback outdoors instead of indoors. Then <laughs> some years ago, I had the opportunity because some teenagers with whom I was familiar were going horseback riding and invited me to join them. Although I was scared to no end, I could not turn down the invitation. All I said was a simple prayer. Here I sit upon a horse about to take a certain course. 
if I should die before him too. That's one less ride I'll have to do. <laughs> and so that Saturday night, I showed up at the barn where the horse were crowd. The girl that owned the horse I was riding suggested I mount from the side instead of the back. And a few moments, we were off. I mean, I remember though yesterday, I was riding so high in the saddle as though to say, look out Hollywood, here I come. No sooner was I enjoying my moment of fantasy than she reduced me to a moment of fact. She said, oh, by the way, Larry, that horse has a disgusting habit. I said, what's that? She said, sometimes when it sees a car coming, it will step over the path of the car, thereby forcing it to stop. Then it will turn its rear end towards the car, back up so it feels its legs hit the bumper, and sit down on the hood of that car. And I looked towards her and I was saying, I just told everything. I hope you don't think I am so dumb as to believe that. No sooner did I think that, and before God, I am not lying or exaggerating. This car approached in the distance. As soon as that dumb, stupid, ignoramus, excuse for horse, saw the car, he turned his southern hemisphere towards the car, backed up to a fellow's hind legs to the bumper, and sat down on the hood of that car. I have never been so embarrassed in my whole life because there I sat looking like a spaceship all ready for takeoff. <laughs> now, there's no doubt in my mind, had I known then what I know now about horseback riding, I could have kept that from happening. One thing I'd done is shot the horse. <laughs> but that day, I learned a simple principle in horseback riding. Because the girl that owned the horse said to me, Larry, there's one thing to remember when every go horseback riding, you always control the horse. You never let the horse control you. And since then, I've had no trouble horseback riding. Because our first thing I do is walk around the head of that horse, look at eyeball to eyeball, and say to him, so help me, if you sit down on the hood of a car, I'm going to bust your bumper. And all of us have had those tiring daydreams of something like that. Then we say, I don't know enough, I'm not old enough, I'm not strong enough. Then we had the opportunity. We find out it's not nearly as difficult as we have always made him. Well, the thing I find so interesting in that connection, studies have proven that 5% of all Christians ever lead someone to Christ. 95% don't. But the reason they don't is not because they don't want to. I find people like you have daydreamed about what it would be like to lead one person to Christ in your life. Some time ago, I breakfasted with a sportscaster. I was privileged to lead to Christ. He said, if I could lead one person to Christ in my life, I would be so excited. But we say, I don't know enough. I'm not brave enough. I'm not persuasive enough. Well, quite frankly, this paragraph contains the answer that you may have been looking for for 50 years. Because if you know what was about Paul, God used to evangelize Corinth, then you know what God needs you to evangelize Texas. And the thing that's interesting is, what you think you need, you don't. What you don't think you need, you do. But this paragraph that takes the nervousness out of evangelism, let's face it, that's our problem. We are so nervous. Like the man who called the hospital, he said, please, 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 please get, ready, get ready, get ready, get ready, please, please, get ready, get ready. My wife, she's having a baby, I'm bringing her in, she's having a baby, please get ready, my wife, she's having a baby, please get ready, my wife, I'm bringing her in. The nurse says, calm down. <laughs> Let's ask you a few questions. Is this her first child? He said, no, this is her husband. <laughs> but we get so nervous, and this paragraph contains the answer, but look over for 50 years. And the interesting thing is, 
what you don't think you need, you do. What you do think you need, you don't. But this paragraph takes the nurse out of angelism. Now, the first thing he says you need takes care of all those of us who say, I just don't know enough. Because the first thing he says you need is a simple message. Look at verse 1. And I, brethren, came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. Now, that word, excellence of speech or wisdom, means a superiority of speech or wisdom. What he is saying is, my message was not characterized by fancy words or philosophic depth. Now, please rest assured, that was not because Paul's intelligence was limited. There are some people who feel Christians are not that intelligent. Apologist Josh McDowell said before he came to Christ, he always figured Christians had two brains. The one was lost, the other one was out looking for it. <laughs> and there are some people who feel Christians are just about as intelligent as a man that came to work one morning, and he had two bright red ears. Someone said, then what in the world happened to you? He said, I did the dumbest thing. As I was getting ready this morning, I was ironing my shirt, and the phone rang. I picked up the iron instead of the phone. And they said, oh, no, what happened to the other ear? He said, the same guy called back. <laughs> and some people feel Christians are just about that intelligent. That was not Paul the Apostle. You got to remember, he grew up in Tarsus, a city noted for his intellectuality. He mastered the Greek language. He had a knowledge of Roman law and custom, second to none. That in Gamaliel, one of the most distinguished teachers of his day. Had he been on a panel, he could have debated the best. Had he been confronted with an atheist, he could have laid out the proof for the existence of God. And had he been on a TV game show, he could have answered the $1 million question. The reason he did not demonstrate superiority's picture of wisdom was not because his vocabulary was limited. It was because he limited his vocabulary. It was not because it was a person whom words did not come easy. It was because he chose the easy words. It was not because he could not, but because he would not. Because having told what his message was not, he then tells you what it was. Look at verse 2. For I determined. That means I made up my mind. This was not a decision made one mile in the city. This was a decision made one mile from the city. This was not afterthought. This was a beforethought. I made up my mind to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. From Jesus Christ refers to his person. Him crucified refers to the work. So when you heard Paul, the first thing he told you was not the proof of his deity. It was a proclamation of his death. From the first time he preached Christ and crucified. From the second time he preached Christ and crucified. From the third time he preached Christ and crucified. So you never left his presence saying, what a brilliant speaker. You always left his presence saying, what a beautiful savior. And the first thing he said you need is a simple message. And for that reason, I've been telling people for 48 years, if you know Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead, congratulations. You're now prepared to speak to anybody anywhere because God wants a person with a simple message. The Bible is six, six books. The gospel is 10 words. Christ died for sins and rose from the dead. What's the gospel? Say it with me. Christ died for sins and rose from the dead. What's the gospel? Christ died for sins and rose from the dead. What's the gospel? 
Christ died for sins and rose from dead. And for that reason, if you know Christ died for my sins and rose from dead, congratulations. You're now being prepared to speak to anybody anywhere because God wants to person with a simple message. And so many times we think that in order to evangelize, you've got to be able to answer any question an unbeliever might ask, refute any argument they bring up, or explain any verse in the Bible they point to. And you know what we often do? We prepare answers to questions. We prepare answers that don't even fit the questions unbelievers today are asking. I love this story of the man from France that came to New York City, and he wanted to earn some extra money. The problem was he did not know any English, but he meant the owner of a fruit market who knew French could talk to him in his language and was trying to get away for lunch. He said, I will pay you to watch my market as I go to lunch. And the Frenchman said, but I don't know any English. Frenchman said, that will not be any problem because there's only three things people are going to ask you. The first thing they're asking is, how much are they? The most popular thing I sell are apples. And the first thing they're asking is, how much are they? Just say 25 cents a piece or five for lauder. He told them how to say 25 cents a piece, five for lauder. Second thing they might say is, are they any good? I think honesty is the best policy. Just say sometimes yes and sometimes no. He told them how to say sometimes yes and sometimes no. He said, the third thing they might ask is, might say is, I don't think I'll buy any. Just say, well, if you don't, somebody else will. And so he told him how to say, if you don't, somebody else will. He says, that's all you got to remember. 25 cents a piece, five per dollar. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. If you don't, somebody else will. All you got to remember. 25 cents a piece, five per dollar. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. If you don't, somebody else will. All you got to remember. 25 cents a piece, five for dollar. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. If you don't, somebody else will. All you got to remember. 25 cents a piece, five for dollar. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. If you don't, somebody else will. All you got to remember. 25 cents a piece, five for dollar. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. If you don't, somebody else will. With that, he left the market, left the Frenchman in charge. A few moments later, a policeman walked in and did not realize this man did not know any English. So he said to the Frenchman, could you tell me what time it is? Freshman said, 25 cents a piece or five for lauder. Policeman said, are you trying to make a fool out of me? Freshman said, sometimes yes and sometimes no. <laughs> Policeman said, I feel like take you right off to jail. Freshman said, if you don't, somebody else will. <laughs> and all we do is prepare answers. Don't fit the question the unbelievers they are asking. And if you know Christ died for my sins and rose from the dead, congratulations. You're now prepared to speak to anyone, anywhere. As I tell people so often, God's greatest desire is not for someone who can defend him, but somebody who can declare him. And you know what I find so interesting about that? Do you know who leads more to Christ than anybody else? Sure you do. It's our brand new what? Christian. Know what's interesting? They don't know anything. <laughs> All they know is Christ died for me. And they tell him and him and her, her and lead a world to Christ with it. Dawson Trotman, who founded an association called the Navigators, one time said, soul winners are not soul winners because of what they know, but because of who they know and how much they want others to know him. And if you know Christ died for my sins and rose from dead, congratulations. You are now prepared to speak to anybody, anywhere. Because God wants a person with a simple message. The Bible is six, six books. The Gospels, 
10 words. What are those 10 words again? Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. I love the story of the man, fresh out of seminary, that was candidating at his first church close to university town. And he sought the wisdom of his godly father. He said, Dad, I am so afraid I'll be hampered in my preaching. If I say something about geology, a man with a doctor's degree might catch me in some error. If I say something about Greek literature, I'll feel inferior in the presence of a learned person or congregation. If I say something about some sort of geology, I'll feel so inferior in the presence of a learned person or congregation. Dad, what in the world do I do? And as God the Father says, son, just tell them about Jesus. They probably never heard about him. <laughs> he said, you need a simple message. Have you know Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead? Congratulations. You are now prepared to speak to anybody, anywhere. But then you're going to mention the second thing you do. And this takes, the second thing you need, this takes care of all those of us who say, I'm just not brave enough. And the second thing he says you need is an obedient, even though fearful spirit. An obedient, even though fearful spirit. Look at verse 3. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. You see, the philosopher that day had the attitude, give me your questions, I'll answer all of them. Give me your arguments, I'll refute all of them. They kind of remind you of the three boys bragging about the intellectual abilities of their dads. One boy said, I'll tell you, my dad is so intelligent, he can talk for one hour on any subject. Second boy said, I'll tell you, my dad is so intelligent, he can talk for two hours on any subject. Third boy said, I'll tell you, my dad is so intelligent, he can talk for three hours, not even have a subject. <laughs> That's what the philosophers are like. They could talk for three hours and not have a subject. Look at Paul's demeanor in verse 3. He said, I am with you in weakness. That word weakness refers to everything from the thorn in the flesh, whatever that was, to his absence of physical strength due to his unimpressive build. Most historians picture Paul as a man bony and bow-legged. The last person who would have ever made the cover of Fitness Magazine or won a weightlifting contest. Then he says in verse 3, I'm with you in weakness, in fear. That fear refers to everything from the weakness of the city, made him unpopular, to hostility of the Jews that made him unwanted. Sometimes he felt like walking right through the front door saying everything. Sometimes he felt like walking through the back door saying nothing. Being a hunter, I love the story of the two hunters that went to Alaska on a grizzly bear hunt. All of a sudden, they came across the footprints of what had to be a man-eating grizzly. Right there, they froze. Then the one hunter looked at the other hunter and said, you go that way, see where he went. I'll go this way, see where he came from. <laughs> Must have been time Paul felt like saying, you go that way, talk to him. I'll go back over and pray for you. Then he said, weakness, fear, then in verse 3, and in much trembling. That word trembling refers to the quivering on the outside of the body. They reflected the nurses on the inside. Had you been in front of him, you would see his lips quivering. Had you been behind him, you'd see his legs shaking. He had an obedient, even though fearful spirit. He knew there was an announcement to be made. God wanted him to make it. He knew there was a message to be given. God wanted him to give it. 
He knew there was something to be shared. God wanted him to share it. Did you notice? He did not say. I stayed at home in weakness, fear, much trembling. He said, I was with you in weakness, fear, much trembling. And an obedient and fearful spirit. And let's face it. One of the biggest problems we face evangelism, including Larry Moyer, is a problem of fear. And sometimes that fear makes us panic. And we can do some of the craziest stuff. Part of my way through seminary, I worked as a fuller brush salesman. How many of you know what fuller brush is? You just told me how old you are. <laughs> Door-to-door selling of household goods. All you do is walk up to a house and say, good afternoon. I'm your Florida brush salesman. Then as a friendly gesture, you say, would you like a barbecue brush? Would you like a letter opener? And then go on to tell about the other items you had for sale. Well, there was another guy in my class that was also a Florida brush salesman. But this guy was a gentleman with a capital G. He would not even open an oyster without knocking on the shell first. <laughs> and so he walked up to his house. He said, good afternoon. I'm your Florida brush salesman. And she said, oh, go away. I'm so fed up with life, I'm thinking about committing suicide. And even though he knew she was not serious, only making a inflammatory remark, he was so shocked he didn't know what to say. So he looked at her and he said, well, would you like a letter opener? <laughs> and sometimes we are so fearful, we panic, and we can say some of the craziest stuff. And wherever I travel as evangelists, people say to me, how do you avoid being afraid? My answer is, I don't know. 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 This side of heaven, you will always have times of fear. But the problem is not when you're afraid. It's when you go ahead in spite of your fear. And those evangelized don't do it without fear. They do it in spite of fear. And you have an obedient, though fearful spirit. And if you take care of your obedience, God will always take care of your fear. If you take care of your obedience, God will always take care of your fear. Luis Palau, who was known as a Buddhagram of South America, went to be with the Lord earlier this year. One time made the comment, when it comes to witnessing to your neighbor, even an evangelist has problems. Leighton Ford, who worked with the Buddhagram Association, said, I preach to crowds of 60,000 people, yet I still get nervous. Talk to somebody about Christ. And if you ask Larry Moyer, when was the last time you're afraid? I'll tell you about the person I witnessed to this week. I need an obedient, though fearful spirit. And if you take care of your obedience, God will always take care of your fear. And again, the people evangelize don't do it because they're not afraid. They do it in spite of fear. As you take care of your obedience, God will always take care of your fear. Back during the Civil War, General Day one time wrote a note to Stonewall Jackson and said to him, now, the next time you ride in the direction of headquarters, I wish to see you on a matter of no great importance. As soon as Stonewall Jackson got the word, he sat his horse the next morning and rode nine miles against a storm of wind and snow to Lee's headquarters. When he got there, Lee was surprised to see him. He said, my message said, I wish to see you on a matter of no great importance. And Stonewall Jackson said, but that's just the point. 
You said you wished to see me. Your smallest wish is my supreme command. God needs those who say your smallest wish is my supreme command. As you take your obedience, God will always take care of your fear. You need an obedient, though fearful spirit. But then there's the third thing he said you need. This takes care of all those of us who say, I'm just not persuasive enough. He says the first thing you need is a simple message. If you know Christ died for sin, rose from dead, congratulations. You can now speak to anybody anywhere. He said you need an obedient, though fearful spirit. And as you take your obedience, God will take care of your fear. And the third thing he said you need is the right perspective. Look what he says there in verses 4 and 5. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power. That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, Paul remembered what you and I forget. People are not brought to Christ by the power of persuasion. They're not brought to Christ by a system of logic. They're not brought to Christ by the articulation of an argument. They're brought to Christ when the Holy Spirit takes the truth of the gospel to rise on the heart and cause them to come to God by faith. They're brought to Christ by the Holy Spirit, not the human spirit. They're brought to Christ by what verse 4 calls the demonstration of the spirit of power. That means the proving power of the Holy Spirit. They are brought to Christ by the Holy Spirit, not the human spirit. That's why there is not one verse in that book that says, bring the lost to Christ, not one verse. God said, bring Christ the lost, because only he can bring the lost to Christ. And you have to have the right perspective. Now, you and I know just as well as I, you, you know just as well as I do, perspective is key to just about everything in life. For example, I am so amused as I travel to find out and observe how Americans feel about their birthdays. Because for the first 40 years, they could not enjoy them anymore. But then the 40th birthday hits as hello coffin, here I come. In fact, I found from ages 1 to 40, people enjoy their birthdays. From 40 to 60, they endure their birthdays. From 60 to 80, they abhor their birthdays. After 80, they can't remember when their birthday is. <laughs> when you stop and think about it, every birthday you have ought to be more exciting than the one before. Because studies have proven the more you have, the longer you live. <laughs> and all you need is a right perspective. That same perspective is critical to evangelism. Arguments can be answered with arguments. Logic can be answered with logic. Persuasion can be answered with persuasion. But in order for conversion to take place, the Holy Spirit has to take the truth of the gospel, drive home their heart, and cause them to God by faith. Paul did not want anyone leaving saying, I believe because Paul convinced me. He wanted everyone leaving his presence saying, I believe because God convinced me. As he said in verse 5, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And I've made it a practice over 48 years to say to those who come to Christ in our outreaches, what did I say to convince you of your need to come to Christ? 
And it's so honoring to God how many times they've said to me, all I can tell you is God was speaking to me. One time a woman came to Christ for outreach. She was in adultery, homosexuality, on drugs, and Satan worship. I said, what did I say that convinced you you need to come to Christ? She said, Larry, I did everything I did could to avoid listening to you. I started counting all the pounds of wood that were behind you. Then I went to counting your teeth. She said, all I remember is two things. He said, I don't care what you've done, God loves you. And you gave an illustration of one person dying for another. I knew God would speak to me. And she's a growing Christian today. And what you need is the right perspective. God is not saying bring the lost to Christ. God is saying bring Christ to the lost. Your job's contact. His job's conversion. Your job's presentation. His job's persuasion. Your job's sowing. His job's saving. That's why I've never asked one person, and I never will, how many of you led to Christ? Because that's not your job. What I've said is, how many of you presented Christ to? As you do the presenting, he'll do the persuading. You're going to probably be surprised to hear this coming from evangelists. By which years ago, we would have never started to use the phrase soul winning. Let's go soul winning. I'm sorry. That's not our job. That's God's job. Our job is gospel sharing. His job is soul winning. And we do the gospel sharing, he'll do the soul winning. Sometimes you'll be the fourth of 15 people God's going to use. Sometimes you'll be the fifth to 20. Sometimes you'll be the 16th to 38. It's all exciting when you're the 26th to 26. But God's saying, bring Christ the lost. He's not saying, bring lost to Christ. And all you need is the right perspective. And what I'm pouring my heart out to you about this morning is I find people daydream about what it'd be like to lead one person to Christ in their life. I've had people say, Larry, you don't know how many people I've led to Christ in my great dreams. But we say, I just don't know enough. I'm just not brave enough. I'm just not persuasive enough. He said, you need three things. A simple message. If you know Christ died for sins and rose from the dead, you're now prepared to speak to anybody, anywhere. The Bible is six, six books. The Gospels, ten words. What are those ten words again? Christ died for sins and rose from the dead. You know, obedient, though fearful spirit. As you take care of your obedience, God will always take care of your fear. The people evangelize. Don't do it without fear. They do it in spite of fear. And need the right perspective. God's not saying, bring the lost to Christ. God's saying, bring Christ the lost. And if you do your part, I'll do mine. You do the conversing, I'll do the converting. And I could put everything I've just said into one main idea that I hope you never forget. And that is, you don't need to be a brilliant person with a clever mind, but a broken person with a clear message. You don't need to be a brilliant person with a clever mind, but a broken person with a clear message. That's why the people God uses don't look like they just walked out of the bookstore. They look like they just walked out of their prayer closet. 
They're not people hung up in their degree. They're people hung up on their discipleship. They're not people impressed with themselves. They're people who are impressed with him. Because you don't need to be a brilliant person with a clever mind, but a broken person with a clear message. Can we say this together, all together? You don't need to be a brilliant person with a clever mind, but a broken person with a clear message. Again, you don't need to be a brilliant person with a clever mind, but a broken person with a clear message. Now, let's make it personal. Let's turn the U to an I and say it again. I don't need to be a brilliant person with a clever mind, but a broken person with a clear message. Again, I don't need to be a brilliant person with a clever mind, but a broken person with a clear message. Again, I don't need to be a brilliant person with a clever mind, but a broken person with a clear message. Again, I don't need to be a brilliant person with a clever mind, but a broken person with a clear message. God's given me two spiritual gifts. The one's evangelism, the other's repetition. <laughs> Say it again. I don't need to be a brilliant person with a clever mind, but a broke person with a clear message. What kind of person do you have to be in order to lead someone to Christ? You don't need to be a brilliant person with a clever mind, but a broke person with a clear message. And therefore, if you're broken, if you're clear, God will use you to impact your community for Christ. And he'd love to start today. One time there was a housewife, true story, in the Midwest, came to Christ. And she was so impressed with what Christ had done for her. She wanted everybody to hear the good news. Christ died for you. Well, close to her there was a university. So she wrote to every woman in the girls' dormitory, true story, and said, may I come and talk with you about spiritual things? Many said, no thanks. Many said, come on. But she encountered opposition in a place she never expected it when one of those girls that signed up to talk to her turned out to be a Christian. And she said to the new believer, I don't think you ought to do what you're doing. You don't know the issues universities are facing. You don't know the questions these students are facing, asking. You could do more harm than good. New believer said, I disagree. I could do more harm than good, but I don't disagree. I am not the best person. Would you see to it? Everybody in this dormitory hears the good news. Christ died for you. Believers said, no, I don't think I know how. And besides, I'm not willing. New convert said, that's what I find so disgusting. Because of people like you who are not willing to do it, God has to rely upon people like me. You know what? God's been relying upon people like you and me for years. And he's going to continue to do so. You know why? Sure you do. Say it together. I don't need to be a brilliant person with a clever mind, but a broken person with a clear message. Once more, loudly and clearly, I don't need to be a brilliant person with a clever mind, but a broken person with a clear message.
if you're broken and clear, God will use you to change somebody's eternal destiny. And what greater thing can you be used of God to do than that? Let's pray together. This morning, as our heads to our eyes are closed, two things. First of all, I'm always aware in a group like this, could be somebody who not certain if they were to die to go to heaven. And before you can tell someone else how to go there, got to first be certain you're going there yourself. It's hard to direct somebody to a place you're not sure you're going. If you're here and you don't know for sure you die to go to heaven, God has a simple message. Christ died for you and arose. If you come to the sinner and recognize he died for you and arose and trust him alone to get you to heaven, nothing else, God give you eternal life as a free gift. If you don't have that settled, please do not leave before seeing the pastor, myself, one of the leaders here, because you're never prepared to live until you're prepared to die. But if you do have that settled, the only thing you take with you to heaven is a friend. So let me ask you, how will your life be different after this morning? Don't tell me, tell God. He spoke to you, now you spoke to, speak to him. Whatever is going to be different in your life after today, particularly as it relates to talk to others about you, about Christ, tell him right now. Our gracious Father, if some of us were asked what kind of Christian need to be to lead someone to Christ, we'd write about six volumes and say nothing. You take one sentence and say it all. It says all. We don't need to be a brilliant people with clever minds, broken people with a clear message. I pray for my brothers and sisters. You might use them to impact eternity for Christ. Then they might make an eternal difference upon the neighbors in their neighborhood, the people they're working with, their family members, their contacts, the postman, the salesman, whoever it is they meet. And that even this week, somebody's eternal destiny might be changed because you spoke to us. Now we can speak to them. In Jesus' name we ask for thanksgiving. Amen.